continue to worship the Lord now through the public reading and study of his word. And uh, just like the early church, we're going to try and do it for two hours, yeah? Before we do, there's a small prayer called the Collect. Almighty God, whose Son, our Savior, is the light of the world, grant that your people, enlightened by your word and sacraments, <coughs> may shine with the radiance of his glory, that he may be worshipped and obeyed to the ends of the earth, through Jesus, the Anointed One, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, now and forever. Amen. The first reading is from the book of Exodus, and it's all of chapter 19. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they had set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai. And Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possessions. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back, summoned the elders and the people, and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you, will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. But put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning, 
with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and that many of them shall perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up the Mount Sinai, because you yourself have warned us, put limits around the mountain, and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people, and he told them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good evening. The second reading is taken from the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, and verses 3 to 6. 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, and verses 3 to 6. It reads, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For, that, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Story of the Transfiguration. It's year B in the lectionary, so it'll come from the Gospel according to Mark. Please stand. Friends, the good news according to Mark. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him, and he led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before him, before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, 
He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. And then a cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray. Father, we ask that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear this evening. Open our eyes, open our ears, so that uh, we can see your glory and hear your voice. Amen. Now the says. Transfiguration Sunday, and it is a, an event in the church calendar uh, that's a little unusual because most churches, traditional historic churches, uh, commemorate, celebrate, um, retell the story of this incredible event twice a year. Once a year, <clears throat> twice a year. And uh, once is, is the middle of August, there is a, a holiday, yes, Christian feast day for the trans, uh, Transfiguration. And always the Sunday, yes, before the beginning of Lent, as the Transfiguration story is told yet again. So twice in one year, and no obvious answer for that, but I think something, there might be something instinctive in that the transfiguration, yes, um, transfiguration is an unexplainable, or fully unexplainable, yes, hard to imagine, incredible, yes, awe-inspiring event. I've been um, a tour guide on and off for 30 years, and almost on every tour we go to Mount Hermon in the north, and there we talk about the transfiguration, especially as it connects to the life of Jesus and on his, his way to Jerusalem, his way to the cross, and after 30 years standing on Mount Hermon and seeing some incredibly beautiful sights being encompassed on more than one occasion, you know, by a cloud, it made it difficult to, to see a few meters uh, in front of myself. It still strikes me as something very, very mysterious. Yes? And I, I feel almost that would take a lifetime right, to somehow even get to the bottom of it. And even one lifetime would, would certainly never be enough. 
And in some ways, it's not difficult. Yes, we can put it in the context. The context would be that when Jesus begins his ministry, he hears a voice. That voice affirms Jesus. It tells, the, it's a voice of a father, right? It's a voice of authority. It's a voice of love and encouragement, <clears throat> affirmation. At the baptism, <clears throat> that voice that Jesus hears says, yes, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. You are my son in whom <clears throat> I'm well pleased. And we've mentioned before, in fact, I think we mentioned earlier uh, in the year, why is God well pleased with Jesus? And there's a paradox there. And the paradox, yes, sums up, you might say, a biblical reality. On one hand, Jesus has done nothing. Jesus hasn't given a teaching. He hasn't uh, delivered anyone from demons. He hasn't gone from synagogue to synagogue. Yes, he hasn't written any books. There aren't 30,000 denominations named after him. Not yet, at least. <clears throat> there will be soon. And it's as if God is saying, you haven't done anything. You don't need to do anything. And yet, yes, you are my beloved son. But then again, on the other hand, Jesus has done a lot. He's remained faithful. He's remained quiet. He's waited, yes, patiently for many years. Obviously, he was a obedient or Torah in some form or another, a Torah observant Jew, taking God's commandments seriously. See, we we hear in Luke's gospel, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue every week. And so maybe God is, that voice that speaks at the Jordan River is a voice that God is saying, I'm well pleased in you or with you for being patient, being faithful, and yes, waiting, yes, waiting, not giving up, not becoming discouraged. That's the first voice. And the second time Jesus hears that voice, it's on a high mountain, six days after Caesarea Philippi. After Jesus pops the question to his disciples, who do men say that I am? Then he asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter gets the right answer. And then Jesus begins from that point onwards to talk about, yes, talk about his going to Jerusalem. He says on more than one occasion, on three occasions in the synoptics, I must, I must, I must, I must go to Jerusalem where I will be, yes, 
hand, where the chief priest and the elders will hand me over to the Romans, I will be crucified and I will be raised from the dead. Now, I'm of the opinion, and you can disagree with me or write me an angry letter, that when Jesus is 12 years old and he's skipping around Jerusalem, he doesn't know he's going to die. This, I believe, was revealed to him slowly, yes, by his father. And surely, if we put ourselves in Jesus, his, his place, his, yeah, surely Jesus being human as well as divine is probably thinking to himself, wait a minute, am I hearing correctly? This doesn't seem to make sense. It's certainly counterintuitive. What if this is just some weird, you know, maybe I'm hallucinating. Maybe I'll just go to Jerusalem and be a, a martyr and end up rotting in the tomb or rotting in a grave and it will have no, bring no redemption. So how is God going to encourage him? How is God going to affirm him? How is God going to set him on the road to Jerusalem where the old King James says his face was like flint? Well, you have a supernatural experience. Yes, and on that mountain, yes, God is not only affirming Jesus, but of course he's speaking to those disciples. And there is a message uh, for Jesus, and there's a message for us. It's still relevant. And of course, every good preacher and every good commentary is going to point, yes, or point that event to the story of Moses. And Moses going up, yes, with his six days going up to the top of Mount Sinai with his three friends, where he will hear God's voice, where God will, of course, speak in a cloud, where there will be uh, Moses, the face of Moses will be transfigured. That's chapter 24 of Exodus. But I was thinking, you know, there's another chapter. There's another portion of scripture that I think speaks, or it runs in parallel as to what happened in the three synoptic gospels. And it also has a message for us. And that's Exodus 19. We read the whole chapter. <coughs> By the way, if I'm not mistaken, was that the, the Torah portion last week? Yes, <coughs> the Torah portion in the synagogue on Saturday morning. And so Exodus 19 begins like this. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai, after they set out from uh, Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses came up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, 
This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Mm. The first thing, at least jumps out, is seeing, right? Moses says, you have seen, tells the people of Israel, you have seen what I have done to Egypt and how I protected you the way that an eagle protects her young, kept you safe, yes, and brought you where? Oh, so we think in terms, oh, he brings them to the land of Israel. Yes, he brings them to Sinai as to reaffirm the covenant, to give them the Torah. Well, land, covenant, and Torah, all very important. Yes, but that's not the purpose of redemption. In fact, being free, right, escaping slavery, this more often than not is a way that Passover is framed. Yes, Passover is about freedom, the festival of freedom. Israel going out from Egypt, no longer slaves. It's not a very, prom- actually biblically, it's not a very prominent theme at all. The purpose of redemption is that so that God can bring the people to himself. The purpose of redemption is so that the people of Israel can enter into a relationship with the living God. Yes, the the one who creates heaven and earth. I don't think three or four sermons are allowed to go by, at least the ones that I preach, that I do not find some way, yes, to work in my, uh, I think my favorite verse in the entire Hebrew Bible. Yes, so, you know, here it goes. Most of you are going to say, here he goes again. It's from Exodus 29. Exodus 29 is about Yes, the consecration of the priest, the preparation of the tabernacle, uh, the garments, and more. So, verse 44 says, So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar, and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of Egypt, so they might... I like that. It's kind of spooky and mystical, you know. Turn it up again. I brought them out of Egypt so they could start up El Al Airlines and give everyone a hassle, you know, at security. I brought them out of Egypt so they can be the subject of a 24-7 news cycle endlessly. I brought them out of Egypt so they could create the best falafels in the world. I brought them out of Egypt 
so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord, their God. The purpose of redemption, yes, the primary purpose of redemption is so that God can bring his people, yes, to himself. And it's no different with us as Christians. What is the purpose of redemption or the purpose of salvation? It's not simply to die and go to heaven. Or it's not simply to have, you know, a nice tranquil life with God providing, you know, healing and finances uh, when we may need it. Right? In fact, in Matthew chapter 1, when the angel tells Mary that the baby that she will conceive, the child she will conceive, will be called Jesus. And the angel explains the name. He will save his people from their sins. But almost immediately the angel goes on to say that his name is Emmanuel, God with us. Right? The purpose of our sins being forgiven purpose of us being rescued from Satan, the purpose of, of us being rescued from death and the fear of death is so that God might dwell amongst us or so that God, we might dwell with God, right? So there might be fellowship. And it really amazes me, right, how often we major on minors, instead of God himself, right? And to, you might say, to actualize, right, the purpose of our redemption, right? So we get excited about, you know, the Bible and the next president of the United States, big issue. Or there's the issue of infant baptism and adult baptism or there is any number of controversies, issue after issue. And I'm not saying these aren't, these aren't important. They are important, but they're secondary. They're absolutely secondary, right, to a relationship, right, you know, with God himself. And we get excited about a lot of things but not many of us get very excited about God. Yeah. They're not very excited about God. So Israel, Israel saw, and if we had time, and you're, you're very fortunate that we don't, if we had time, we'd look through the book of Exodus and, ta- and look and examine the number of instances, yes, where God uh, talks about the people of Israel seeing his miraculous deliverance, seeing his mercy, seeing his goodness, right? Seeing his care and compassion for his people. Remember, God speaks in this instance as a father because in Exodus 4.22, God calls Israel his son. So God is speaking as a father. 
Of course, as God, as we read, as Aaron went through the chapter, some of you maybe were starting to get nightmares, this God is not only compassionate, and he's not only caring, and there's not only a tenderness that, in the verses that we just read, but of course, God is a holy God. Right? God is indeed loving and caring and fatherly, and yet he demands holiness from his people. And so the people of Israel saw right, the mighty acts of the Lord. Right? They acknowledged them. They expressed their gratitude, at least in the beginning. They saw. So seeing, right, becomes, seeing becomes uh, essential in all of this. And then there's hearing. You know, so it says, now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, Here's an if with a promise. Here's one of the many promises of God that comes with a condition. In fact, most promises, not all, are conditional. And this one is too. God says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant. Now I'm reading from the nearly infallible version. And last week, our sensational, really excellent speaker, Yoel Ben David, spent a few minutes mocking the NIV, the nearly infallible version. I mean, should we invite him back or not? <clears throat> Probably not. Now, the NIV is, and why do we use it here? Because for folks who might have English as a second or third language, it's actually very good. But on the other hand, it takes almost every metaphor and flattens them, yes, and makes the, uh, you might say, takes the color or the drama. Because literally in Hebrew, it doesn't say, if you obey me. It says, if you will listen to my voice. If you will listen to my voice, right, then what? Okay. No, sorry, if you, listen, if you fully listen to my voice and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession, and the whole earth is mine. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Wow, what an incredible status, right? A treasured possession. Segula in Hebrew. And it's a word that well, shows up eight times in the scripture. Twice it has the meaning of the king's personal treasury. Yeah, the personal bank account of a king. But interestingly, in Akkadian, in, in Ugaritic, yes, the, the, there's a sim very similar word. And what does it mean? It means to be in covenant. It means to be in covenant with the king. It means to enjoy a special relationship or a special status. And it also means 
that you're one that is given a special responsibility, right? With privilege, with privilege comes responsibility, obligations, you might say. And yet God calls Israel his treasured possession. And he says, you will be a nation of priests and you will be, well, a holy nation and a kingdom of priests, meaning that one of, God's pur- one of God's purposes for calling and electing the Jewish people was not for, only for the sake of the Jewish people, but was for the sake of the whole world. Right? That is, it is Israel's calling to serve the nations. It's Israel's calling to reveal the true God to us who are Gentiles. Now, you might say, wonderful. It's really nice that Israel has a calling like that. But I don't know if we recall that in the epistle of Peter, Peter says the following. following. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, yes, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Very interesting. Uses the same phrases, plus one more, that we find in Exodus 19. And equally interesting, where Exodus 19 says, yes, God says to Israel, I brought you to myself. What does that do? What does it do for Israel? It actually gives Israel an identity. Yes? God defines the identity of Israel and the Jewish people. God tells them who they are by saying, you belong to me. Yes? By belonging to me, by connecting with me, by being in relationship with me. Yes, this makes it very clear who you are. In fact, Israel, of course, until God chose Israel, Israel wasn't even a people. And here we have the same in, uh, in First Peter. Because First Peter is telling us that we are a people belonging to God that declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light, right? We who are the believers are also a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, right? A chosen people. I don't think that cancels Israel's covenant. It just simply expands it. Yes, it expands the covenant and we're included, yes? And again, we take our identity, or we get our identity, right, from from who we attach ourselves to. Who do we belong to? And by the way, that's very biblical and very Middle Eastern. In the West, it's I think, therefore I am, right? I'm going to determine and create my own identity. In the Middle East, and what's biblical, 
Yes. I am, right, because I belong. Right? I belong to a group. I belong to a religion. I belong to a family. And that gives me my identity. That tells me who I am. And so, we go to the story now. We go to the story of Mark chapter 9. Jesus goes up to the mountain. He has those three disciples. Those disciples go up with him. And they are confused. They are fearful. They certainly lack faith. Um, maybe they're even being a bit obstructionist, right? Because the, the disciples, and Peter especially, will spend a lot of time trying to stop Jesus from going to the cross. And who knows, maybe Jesus, Peter says, let's put up three tabernacles so we can kind of hang out here for a while. They don't want to go down to Jerusalem, Jesus. And yet, <clears throat> what I find really fascinating is that the same word for transfiguration, yes, same word for transfiguration is used in the epistles, yes, to talk about, yes, the growth and maturity that all of us should be undergoing. Remember Romans 12, 2? Yes, have... Can anyone quote it for me? Do not be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word for being transformed is the same thing that actually happened to Jesus on that mountain. Amidst his, you might say, shocked and unbelieving disciples. And of course there's one of the most powerful passages in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians. Which talks about, yes, contemplating or beholding Jesus the Messiah. And in that contemplation of Jesus, yes, it talks about us being, talks about us being transformed. Yes, it says, and we who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory or, or who uh, we are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And 1 John 3 tells us, yes, we shall be like him. Right. There is an invitation to transformation. You might say there is an invitation for us not to stay, at least metaphorically, on that mountain, right? Confused, without faith, Right? Um, sometimes being obstructionist. And that happens, I believe, that happens, that transformation occurs, all right, when we see and when we hear, right? When we behold the glory of the Lord and the glory of Jesus is, uh, in particular, right? Because Jesus. <clears throat> is right Jesus is Jesus reflects that glory of God and when and when we 
behold the Lord, or when we set the Lord before us, Psalm 16, always I have set the Lord before me, right? When we practice the presence of the Lord by bringing the Lord into, right, our daily mundane, <clears throat> mundane lives, and when we reflect upon his glory, yes, transformation occurs. Now, you might think, wait a minute, his glory, fireworks, yes, clouds, you know, voices that call from heaven, people who come out of the cloud with clothes bleached, you know, bright white, wait a minute, don't uh, get too mystical on us. But what is God's glory? What is the glory of God? Remember in Mo Moses in chapter 32 of Exodus says, God, show me your glory. And what does the Lord say? He said, I, 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 my goodness, yes, my goodness will pass in front of you. My mercy, my willingness to forgive sin, my loving kindness and grace that goes from generation to generation. You want to see my glory, Moses? I will let you see my glory. And I think when we contemplate what the Lord has done for us, Jesus, and not what he did for us 20 years ago or 30 years ago, yes, you know, we, we all like to talk about how we got saved and how we don't drink and smoke and do all those things, which is good, which is really good. But then again, we have the hardest time getting along with our wife or loving our neighbor. Yes. We oftentimes start very well, but we don't always mature and grow, right? There isn't that transformation. It reminds me of the, I've said the story before, but there was a monk in the fourth century. He was an abbot in the fourth century in Cappadocia in Turkey. And he's one day addressed his monks and he said, you guys are great. You have left father and mother and you left fields and you've left your business and, and you've all come here to pray and to serve the Lord. And then he went on to say, and you still fight over a hairbrush. Yes, the process of transformation was not yet complete. It's ongoing. And we have to set the Lord before us. Behold the Lord. Be grateful for not only for what he has done for us, celebrate it, testify, but also, yes, be willing to submit to him and to let him, right, continue that process, which, by the way, may be painful. And secondly, it's not only a question of seeing, it's also a question of hearing. Hearing, hearing that voice, right? The voice of a father, because we've been adopted into God's family. And that same voice that spoke on the mountain to Moses, the same voice that speaks to Jesus, continually speaks to us, maybe not always in such a dramatic way, but continuous, continually speaks to us if we will listen, or as a proverb say, if we incline our ear to listen, right? It's hard for us to listen 
It's hard for us to behold the Lord because most of the time, and I include myself, we're beholding our cell phone <coughs> or we're on the internet. Yeah, so we, we have very little time for contemplation or adoration. Yes, it doesn't seem to exist. But we not only see, but we hear. Yes, we hear the voice of, a, of the Father. And some of us have all kinds of issues. You know, our Father wasn't the, it wasn't the perfect example of, of what a Father should be, or he neglected us, or he left my mother when I was two years old. And if any of this, if any of this kind of stuff gets in the way, then we need to be healed of that. But we need to listen to the voice of one who has authority, of one who loves us, <clears throat> one who cares for us, one who will affirm us and encourage us, but at the same time may also discipline us. Because Hebrews 12 tells us, right, that God, yes, loves his children and like any good parent who loves a child, he will discipline that child. He will discipline that child. Now, how does God speak to us? You know, in the most powerful voice that thundered, yes, the Jesus on Mount Hermon, God spoke to his son through scripture. Yes, he spoke to, through the, the Bible itself. Every one of those phrases comes from a different portion of the Hebrew Bible. Yes, this is my son, Psalm 3. The Kituvim are the writings. Yes, and whom I'm well pleased, or the other version, whom I've chosen. Yes, from the prophets, Isaiah 42. Listen to him. It's from the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books. Yes, and out of every portion of scripture, God speaks and confirms yes, the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. And it's through scripture that God will speak to us first and foremost, first and foremost. But again, if, we, if, if we're not saturated, yes, with the scripture, if we're not studying the scripture, we're not meditating on the scripture, we're not being inspired by the scripture, how on earth will we hear God's voice? And by the way, so many of us say, we know the Lord, we know the Lord, we know, oh, does so-and-so know the Lord? So, but if we don't know someone's voice, do we really know that person? Yes. Now, I know this opens a can of worms and there can be some abuse in all this <clears throat> because people walk around and uh, say things like, the Lord told me to put on yellow socks today, you know. The Lord wants me to do this, or the Lord wants me to do that. And of course, it's very dangerous when it conflicts with Scripture or even the, the general flow of Scripture. And I am, want to affirm that the Lord does speak to us. Yes, speaks to our heart, sometimes speaks in an audible voice, as we can and should be guided by the Spirit. But my goodness, the way that some people talk about the Lord says this and the Lord says that, 
It's actually breaking the third commandment of taking the Lord's name in vain. It's cheapening the Lord. It's a, certainly a bad, it's, it's, it's a bad witness. It's a bad witness. But still nonetheless, yes, on Sinai and on Mount Hermon and, our, and in our lives, we should, yes, seek to behold the Lord. Yes, to behold his glory or his goodness. Also his power, his might, his otherness. And to incline our ear. Yes, and listen to his voice. Yes. So that we actually will be that treasured possession. A holy nation. A kingdom of priests. Now... Let's finish going back to Exodus 19. Remember, Israel is God's treasured possession, Segula. And that tr special relationship that God has with Israel comes with special, those privileges come with special responsibilities. Israel was to be, to serve the nations right, to be a kingdom of priests between God and the nations and more. But I'd like to just remind us that it's not any different for us because going back to First Peter, it says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And that's, by the way, where our identity comes from. Yes, First and foremost, we belong to God. Second, we're Anglicans, or Catholics, or Americans, yes, or Israelis. And then it says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you, have, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and to live as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Who are the pagans? The nations? Those that don't serve the living God. The ministry that God gave to Israel is no different than the ministry that God gives to us. But if we're not transformed and we can't live lives that please the Lord and honor him and we're not lights, we're not light or salt amongst the pagans or those that don't believe, well, woe is us. Woe was us. So the st I think the story of Israel and the story of the church, the story of us as believers, yes, is that God does desire our transformation. And what happened on Sinai and what happened on Hermon, I think points the way for us, seeing and hearing. And Lord, again, we pray that you will enable us to see and enable us to he hear. 
Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us hearts, Lord, uh, that are disciplined, that will indeed desire to seek you, to live in your presence, Lord, to listen to your voice as you speak to us. We pray that you will have mercy upon us and that you will help us yes, to do those things that will um, glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.